Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 5th of July, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Um, well, uh, did, Brian, did you know that uh, this is July the 5th, as you just said, and you know what's significant about this day? Um, tell me. Okay. <laughs> it is the 72nd anniversary, uh, birthday, I should say, of the uh, National Health Service. And as a result, yesterday being the 4th of July was uh, Thank You Day. And I'm sure everybody knew about it. I certainly didn't. Uh, but yesterday was Thank You Day. All kinds of things going on all around the country, street parties, all kinds of things. Um, and uh, well, this was one of their graphics. Pass it on, they say. Uh, I'm not clear what it was we were supposed to pass on. But anyway, there so you go. Clearly drawn by a child for adults or an adult child for adults. Yes, there was a whole host of, of uh, graphics for sharing on social media of this style. Um, and uh, well, let's have a look and see uh, what Boris was saying. This is what he tweeted out. This evening, I had the opportunity to meet and thank some of the fantastic people who have gone and beyond, uh, sorry, above and beyond to support others throughout the pandemic, including NHS workers, volunteers, and cha charity uh, leaders. So this was all about uh, uh, getting, uh, saying thank you to everybody that's got us through the lockdown, but especially the NHS. So over the last few months, the NHS has stepped up in ways never seen before to work out how to deliver services differently following lockdown, recruit tens of thousands more staff, returners, and volunteers and even build hospitals to respond to the COVID-19 global pandemic. Now, the NHS 72nd anniversary is the ideal opportunity to say thank you to everyone who has helped us over the past six months to help respond to this global pandemic, uh, an opportunity to project back that warmth and renewed respect for the NHS to our communities. So that should make us all feel very good. Um, and uh, well, here is the web. Well, let's here's the website of the group that's behind it. It is uh, uh, the Together Coalition, um, and it is headed up by uh, none other than Brendan Cox, the uh, husband of uh, Joe Cox, uh, MP, former MP. Um, and uh, so they've been working with the NHS for this anniversary to focus on and say thank you uh, for this renewed sense of community spirit. Uh, and they've organised a number of national activities over this anniversary weekend. So let's have a look at the organizations that they've organized this with their partners it includes the bbc uh, and a whole bunch of other organizations as we will just scroll through cafe nero cbi uh this gif is... gaff uh we've got kpmg that west nhs uh, all kinds of uh, organizations it never seems to end uh, the sun newspaper uh, and so on unison the uh, uh the union of course um, and uh, virgin media all these people uh, partnering uh, to push forward uh, this day of thanks. It's quite incredible. How do you bring a group of people like that together? And how is that done? I think you can only do it if you've got some serious help by people in high places. Uh, you certainly probably need a network. Uh, but the question is, should we be saying thanks to the uh, NHS? Uh, because and I'm not talking here, once again, I'm going to say, just to clarify, I'm not talking about individual doctors and nurses here who are doing the best they can in trying circumstances. I'm talking about the NHS as an organisation, particularly the management and the policy. Um, uh, we just remind ourselves, the, the BBC, uh, on the middle of June, saying hospital waiting list, top 5 million in England. That's 5 million people not getting uh, treatment uh, by the NHS because of COVID, apparently. Uh, the reorientation. Uh, we've got the fact that doctors still be hiding, hiding behind Zoom screens, according to the spectator. Um, so uh, this is uh, the question. Why 
is why is the health service not providing the health care that, uh, that people need? Uh, but David, um, in order to celebrate this anniversary, uh, we, uh, we had a video clip uh, appeared. Um, it's quite high production values, shall we say? Very high production values, uh, and we'll come on to the accuracy of the message later on. Um, but it's, it's quite astounding in uh, what it's trying to do. Okay, let's have a look at it then. Picture it now. vaccination. Every vaccine gives us hope and two vaccinations are the best way to protect yourself and others. Join the millions and please play your part in getting us back to the rhythm of life. Okay, well look, before I ask David to get you to comment on this, uh, just want to tell you what it, the sort of press release that went with that said. It said, set to the toe-tapping tune of The Rhythm of Life, written by Cy Coleman and Dorothy Fields from the 1966 classical music, classic musical uh, Sweet Charity and donated by the Cy Coleman estate, the heartwarming film will celebrate the success of the vaccination program in supporting the easing of restrictions as outlined in the roadmap, conceived and directed by Josie Rourke, the for former artistic director of the Donmar Warehouse, uh, the short film written by Rourke and James Graham is being released ahead of the NHS's 73rd, it says 73rd birthday, I thought it was 72nd, but anyway, so that's what they're saying. David, uh, just uh, tell us what your thoughts are on it. Well, 
where do you start? If you thought that coming up with an advertising campaign in the middle of a global pandemic called Pass It On was perhaps the low point of, uh, of government propaganda, I'm not sure that you would be right. Um, I mean, yes, we get the metaphor, right? It's an empty, dark theatre, there's nothing happening. And, and then you've got all this liveliness and that's that's being associated with the vaccine. It's completely false to say it's a heartwarming celebration of the success of the vaccine. It's a bullying propaganda film to get you to take the vaccine because they're clearly worried about uptake. Um, I found, given the fact that we've, we have covered um, uh, the, the stories of people who have been affected by paralysis, particularly paralysis in the lower limbs due to the vaccine adverse reactions, to choose a song that talked about the tingle in your feet, I found was mildly repulsive. Um, but, you know, that they may be, maybe that's just ignorance on their part. Um, and this whole play your part, uh, there, there's some encouragement here, but the tone was mostly bullying and carping. Uh, well, it was because, yes, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in the chat box, somebody said, uh, I wonder what Eric Clapton thinks of that. Yeah. But it's it's applied psychology. It's very dark applied psychology. You've you've said bullying, David. It's mocking the public. I think is what it's doing. I'd like to know who, which individual or individuals inside the NHS came up with this idea. I'd like to see the minutes of all the meetings around the planning for this production. I'd like to know the overall cost, and I'd like the people who created it, i.e., uh, from within the NHS. I'd like those brought uh, brought on stage. Let's use their own uh, uh, weapon against them. Brought on stage, put under the spotlight, and questioned about what they think they're doing. But it's very dark. It's attacking people's mindsets. It's very depressing, actually. Albeit, it's got the jovial mu music with it. Um, so uh, the question then is, how much does it cost? Well, let's. Uh bring uh, Nadim Zahawi, uh, uh, a.k.a. Anton LeVay, on screen um, because he was extremely humbled every day when he sees how many people are booking and receiving their jabs, joining the mi millions of adults who have already received theirs. So this is a bit of uh, more applied psychology. If you haven't had it yet, you're feeling left out because uh, millions of others have had theirs, apparently. Uh, vaccines have prevented an estimated 7.2 million infections and 27,000 deaths in England alone. And each vaccine delivered is another step forward in helping us get out of this pandemic. Now, I just want to really have a look at this uh, claim that he is making. Vaccines have prevented an estimated 7.2 million infections, uh, prevented an estimated 7.2 million infections and 27,000 deaths in England alone. Where's this number coming from? Is it accurate? Is it correct? Is it true? Um, well, later on today, and it's going to be later on today towards uh, dinner time. Uh, we're going to publish this article, Why We Must Question Vaccine Efficacy and Safety Claims. It's another in Ian Davis's series on this. It is a fantastic article. It's still in draft because it has to get a final proofread. Um, but there are some very, very key points in this article. And it was interesting to me that uh, uh, he had made a particularly key point in this article, which was then reflected by uh, a viewer who sent us uh, some Freedom of Information responses. Uh, and in response to the Freedom of Information responses, uh, she wrote back to Public Health England 
saying this, and this is a point that Ian makes in his article as well. Um, so this is, the, this is the thing. It appears that you, that's Public Health England, are calculating your estimates of vaccine effectiveness in England using estimates of vaccine effectiveness in England as a variable. How can you possibly estimate vaccine effectiveness by assuming vaccine effectiveness before you have started? To illustrate my point, this would be like testing the effectiveness of a new raincoat against getting wet with the following reasoning. The raincoat is effective, and we'll call that X. Let's guess its effectiveness at 90%. Uh, then people wearing the raincoat will give that a, 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 a Y over Z as the uh, formula there, and we'll guess again at 70 over 100 for that. Uh, and then finally, what do we do? Uh, therefore, we say raincoat effectiveness is 90 times 70 over 100, which equals 63%. This is what they've done. Uh, can you see the obvious error, she says to uh, Public Health England. You, begin, you began with a guess at the new raincoat keeping a person dry, and from that deduced that if you just increase the number of people wearing that style of raincoat, more people will stay dry. This is exactly what Public Health England has done. Um, and uh, the article that we're going to publish this afternoon is going to explain this in much more detail. Uh, and I strongly recommend that everybody uh, reads it and indeed shares it. And David, uh, I'm interested in what you think about that uh, particular uh, analogy. Well, it's very good. And, and this is, I mean, there's been consistent since the start of this, that the, the fear has been driven by fake statistics. And now the vaccines are being driven by fake statistics. These are just invented. This is like the old joke that 98.7% that of all government statistics are made up on the spot. You just have to say it with enough confidence and, and a pardon accuracy, and all of a sudden it's a start. It's not based on anything. It is not based on anything. And uh, there are a couple of other, aside from the analysis uh, from Public Health England about uh, vaccine efficacy, there's a couple of other reports in that article which are going to we're going to show are, are doing exactly the same kind of thing. Yes. Well, David, you, you, you picked out the tingling in that very unpleasant NHS um, show earlier on. Um, this article was sent to me. Um, I had to do some work on it because the uh, image is not very good, but it's from the I newspaper. It's talking about um, a gentleman who's had uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And... Um, the inserted box on screen uh, is about the response from the vaccines minister, Nadim Zahawi. Now, I had to do some work on this, so I'll, I'll show people in more detail. I had to go to another article. But somebody who's got Guillain-Barre syndrome, the advice coming from the government is that they should seek mental health advice. So is, is this being, this is a, a significant uh, illness and this is being... Uh, linked to mental illness in some way? Well, uh, we don't actually know. This is so callous. If you remember, um, a couple of months ago, we reported a gentleman who'd suffered Guillain-Barre syndrome. So this is neurological problems after having the vaccine. He ended up, he couldn't walk. Uh, we weren't able to get a, an update as to how that case had progressed. But the testimony from the gentleman's wife was the testimony that got us banned on YouTube. So when UK, UK Column put out factual personal testimony of people suffering this severe neurological damage as a result of the vaccine, 
we were banned on YouTube. But what appears to be happening here is when somebody uh, has suffered this effect, the advice coming back is that they should seek mental health advice. Now, we were able to track down another article on this gentleman, and here he is, it's Nick Pritchard. It says, man left struggling to walk after Oxford jab calls for review of the government compensation scheme. Now, this is one of the things that a lot of people are going to find out, and it's uh, not going to be a pleasant discovery for them. But of course, the government has been utterly brilliant over the years of delaying, stalling, and indeed preventing um, payouts to people who've suffered adverse effects from vaccines. So, um, Sorry, just to correct, it's Nick Pitcher. Uh, Pitcher, okay, Nick Pitcher. Um, so this gentleman says he doesn't regret having the vaccine. He said, I was incredibly unlucky, Mr. Pitcher said. I understand that. This is not about being anti-vax at all. I'm not. I've encouraged my wife and kids to get double jabbed, and they all have. I'm fully behind the vaccines, including the Oxford one I had. This is about those of us that suffer ridiculously rare side effects. People like me have been hit really hard. I'm told by my doctor that I could recover in months or that the impact could last for years. If what I have is not discovered quickly, it can kill you. So in some ways, I was lucky. Now, we'd take this gentleman at face value. He's obviously in a very, very difficult place. Um, he has been hit very hard. Uh, but he said he says that this is ridiculously rare side effects and yet all the evidence that's there not being presented to the public is that this is absolutely not the case so that's not his fault he's being deceived by organizations like the mhra uh, but if we go further into this article let's have a look at this bit mr pitcher's local mp kit malthouse wrote to vaccine minister nadim zahawi about his constituents case in response mr so how we recommended Mr. Pitcher seek mental health advice from his doctor or contact the Samaritans. So this is a gentleman who used to cycle very large distances each day. He was a very fit individual. He's now there, as you see, with problems walking. He's having to use a walking stick. And the advice coming back is that he should seek mental health advice. Um, was this, I'm speculating here because this is such an incredible uh, story was this just total incompetence from the government that they didn't understand what they were being asked, or is it a disgraceful, callous fob off uh, saying, "Don't bother us with your problems. You need a bit of mental health advice." Uh, well, I would suggest uh, maybe David has got th some thoughts on this. I would suggest that uh, uh, Nadim Sahawi doesn't know. Uh, he only repeats what he's briefed. Uh, so um, the question is, is: Has he been told that this is a related to mental illness of some kind. Uh, I don't know, have you got any thoughts, David? Well, we're coming actually to this again from across the pond just very shortly. The tendency uh, in the medical profession to call things that either are inconvenient or, or are not properly understood mental health problems is uh, sadly uh, well documented. Uh, but this one, there's there's no question that what he has is mental health. It's it's not. It's known, and it's and it's one of the most common vaccine reactions. It's very common uh, with the flu jab. Um, so this is this is nothing new. So if if the government didn't understand what they were being asked here, didn't understand the situation, they really have no excuse for not understanding.
Yeah. So a lot of questions to be asked. And if anybody knows more details about that story, can help us out, explain that response. We'd like to know. We'll see if we can work on that ourselves as well. Now, I'd like to put in this email that UK Column received because this uh, shows that more and more people are doing things themselves. They're not sitting, watching, listening. They're getting out and doing things. And here we've got some comments. So somebody's emailed in saying, hi, I've been watching UK Column for some time now. I very much appreciate what you've been doing. This morning on Nextdoor, somebody posted about having an adverse reaction to the jab. I replied, citing MHRA figures and saying, um, did she know it was experimental? So far, my comments haven't been deleted. But what has concerned me is the number of people who are saying that they have had adverse reactions, some really quite awful. I've also had a few positive comments back about what I wrote. There is definitely some kind of awakening, which is good. I've been trying to wake people up for over a year and now recently changing my approach, but I'm also finding that people are becoming more receptive. I still get called names, but that is like water off a duck's back now. I'm unfortunately disabled, which can make it hard for me to attend protests, but I do what I can do. So I thought that was a very, very positive email coming in. People uh, using the data and statistics, partly UK column providing those, of course, but taking the battle out there to the public and saying they're now getting much more receptive response from the public. So we're going to say, well done. We need hundreds of thousands of more people to take that simple sort of action. Um, so, David, uh, let's move across the pond then to a similar story. Uh, and uh, Maddie? Yes. So. Um... This is uh, a young girl aged about 12 and uh, her mother um, speaking to, uh, I think it's a US congressman. Or, and I, I, as you listen to this, I want you to remember that look of irritation and slight contempt in Jim Broadbent's face when he said, just get a job. And uh, as you watch what this uh, young girl has had to suffer. My name is Stephanie. And this is my daughter, Maddie, and we live in Ohio. On January 20th, Maddie received her second dose of the Pfizer COVID vaccine as a participant in the clinical trial for 12 to 15 year olds. All three of our kids volunteered and were excited to participate in the trial as a way to help us all return to normal life. My husband works in the medical field and I have a degree in electrical engineering. We are pro-vaccine and pro-science, which is why we agreed to let Maddie and her two older brothers volunteer for the trial. Before Maddie got her final dose of the vaccine, she was a healthy 12-year-old who got straight A's um, and had lots of friends. She had a life. She was energetic. She was not like this. Upon receiving the second shot, Maddie immediately felt pain at the injection site. And over the next 24 hours, she developed severe abdominal and chest pain. And the way she described the chest pain, and I quote, it feels like my heart is being ripped out through my neck. She had painful electrical shocks down her neck and spine that forced her to walk hunched over. She had extreme pain in her fingers and toes it actually made them turn white and they were cold whenever you touched them. She had edema. Um, so 
My husband immediately took her to the ER as instructed by the vaccine trial nurse administrator, which is what we were instructed to do. Her blood was taken for a renal profile and tested. She was checked for appendicitis, which she did not have, and given an IV with some medicine then sent home. However, in the discharge papers from the Children's Hospital ER that she went to, the diagnosis stated adverse effect of vaccine initial encounter. This would be the only time that that was written in her medical charts, but it's in there. Over the next two and a half months, her abdominal muscle and nerve pain became unbearable. She developed additional symptoms that included gastroparesis, nausea and vomiting, erratic blood pressure and heart rate, memory loss, she mixes up words, brain fog, headaches, dizziness, fainting, she fell and hit her head, and then um, seizures. She had verbal, she developed verbal and motor tics. She had loss of feeling from the waist down and muscle weakness, drastic changes in her vision, urinary retention and loss of bladder control, severely irregular and heavy menstrual cycles, and eventually she had to have an NG tube put in to get nutrition. So because they couldn't figure it out, one physician labored, labeled her as having functional neurologic disorder, saying it was due to anxiety. This concerned us and we didn't agree with it because she doesn't have the anxiety, look at her. I mean, what 13-year-old can sit here calmly, okay? if they have anxiety or mental issues. At one point, they even tried to admit her to a mental hospital. What I want to ask, Maddie volunteered for the Pfizer trial. Why? Why aren't they researching her to figure out why this happened? Um, and do you think Jim Broadbent would like to sing about the tingle in the fingers to that young girl? Um, why indeed uh, has this has this family had to fight and 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 seek support through all of the the unconventional and off grid support groups that are that are springing up spontaneously uh, because they couldn't get support they couldn't get treatment they couldn't get proper investigation through the trial that she was part of how much information is not being gathered from that case that will mean that similar cases will happen in Britain. Um, I find that hugely moving and, and a deeply troubling report. Um, David, uh, there was one thing that I just wanted to get your thoughts on, because at the very beginning of that statement, the mother said she they described her qualifications and the husband's qualifications, and she said, we are pro-vaccine, we are pro-science. And I actually find that, uh, A, the fact that she felt she had to make that statement, but also, B, uh, the implications of it. Because it's, the, this comes back to this, this whole issue of trust, which is something which is, uh, the, the, the government is trying to convince us that we've all got to have. We've got to have trust in science, We've got to have trust in the media. We're not allowed to ask questions if we have trust because we don't need to ask questions. The trust covers everything, every eventuality. And, and the fact that she felt the need to say that means that we are not already in a, we know this anyway, but just to restate it, we are in a position 
where questions cannot be asked without allegations of being a science denier or a vaccine denier thrown at you. The questions need to be asked. We need to get to the truth. This is exactly right. It's not science, it's scientism. It's, uh, it's becoming a religion. And uh, as anyone who follows the, uh, what is termed uh, the anti-vax movement, but in fact the, the movement that's campaigning for realism and accuracy and, and, and clarity of reporting on all of the issues with vaccines and a genuine look at the harm that's being done, um, it's almost to a man and woman, these people were formerly extremely pro-vaccine because the reason that they've adopted the position that they have is because they or their children have been harmed. Um, these are not people who were somehow Luddite. These are people who were following the official advice and have had to deal with the consequences. Yes. Yeah. I, I just wanted to add that um, several people have in our chat box have said, how could, how could a mother, how could parents make that sort of decision well you've partly explained that david but of course the other thing is that we are faced with this massive propaganda campaign against people literally mesmerizing them so that they can't think um, so it's not as if people are just using their own common sense and cognitive abilities to make a decision uh, they are being twisted into different ways of thinking by some very sophisticated techniques through the mainstream media. And I think we've got to show some compassion as we understand that. And also adds that, and I did report it after the event, but at the big London demonstration amongst the uh, people protesting about lockdown and vaccine adverse reactions, there were many people in that demonstration crowd who had been vaccinated, certainly the first time. They had then started to research what was really going on and they were very frightened individuals and i think it's beholden on the rest of us who are understanding more of what this agenda is uh, to show some compassion and understanding because people who've had the vaccine are going to be in a very very dark mental place and it's going to be up to the people who are awake um, to help them get through that so i'm just going to throw that in i think it's a a particularly pertinent way of looking at how we get on with our fellow men and women. Um, okay, David, and uh, let's move on to this, which is from the... This is... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is, this is an extract uh, from the Office of National Statistics for England and Wales, uh, the monthly analysis of uh, all-cause mortality. And we see here in England, um, code U12-9, COVID-19 vaccines causing adverse reactions adverse effects in therapeutic use, um, three deaths have been recorded. Now, that does confirm that, that now in the official statistics, they recognise the vaccines are causing deaths. Very small number. A surprisingly small number, actually, because in Scotland, which has got around about one-tenth the population um, and, and a very similar vaccination rate to England, uh, we've had three deaths also linked uh, to the COVID vaccine. That's, that's in, quite a coincidence. In the, in the official, it is a coincidence. In the official statistics, the National Records of Scotland also record three people having died 
due to coronavirus adverse effects. Um, so if the rate was the same in England and Scotland, then you would expect the English figures to be around 30, uh, not three. So that's that's puzzling. And of course, against that, you've got to remember the the passive reporting into the yellow card system, which only captures a fraction of it. The, 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 the uh, MHRA estimate around about 10% of serious reactions are caught, but they're showing 1,403 fatalities, um, as, as recorded in our, our, our website, which reproduces their data. Yes, but David, um, but David, you've got to, I mean, there's no correlation there, is there? No proven correlation. Well, that's the answer now. But of course, um, in the past, 50 or 60 deaths were enough to have a vaccine uh, pulled completely from use because this is an early warning system. This is to show where there's a problem. So we, we know that, it, that the vaccine is killing people. We've no idea how prevalent it really is. Uh, we know there's enormous numbers of reactions. Um, and, and, and still... The, this, the government, the government advertising is all singing and dancing and get a vaccine and there's not any consideration, there's not any discussion of the risks. And, and in order to be lawful, they have to be informing people of the risks and benefits so that people can weigh up and form their own informed view. That's what consent means. And all the singing and dancing from Jim Broadbent does not generate informed consent. Uh, now, look, just before you move on, I just want to highlight one other statistic on the uh, latest uh, release from MHRA. Now, this is obviously the yellowcard.ukcolumn.org website if you want to get a, a decent overview of what the MHRA statistics look like. But total number of reactions now is over 1 million, 1,007,253. That's from th almost 300,000 individual reports. Um, and now, many people still don't quite understand why there's a difference between those two numbers is because each report may have resulted in more than one reaction. So the, what is the average there? Three or four uh, reactions for each report. Uh, but uh, of course, there's no way from the way that the MHRA uh, produces these statistics, there's no way for us or for anybody else to correlate reactions with reports. So there are patterns in there uh, that we will never get access to for as long as the MHRA continues to report this data in the way that they are. Um, but nonetheless, that's quite a statistic, David, 1,007,253 total reactions. And particularly significant, Mike, when we go back to the MHRA statement that possibly only 2 to 4% of minor effects are reported and possibly only 10% of serious effects. So multiply the serious effects by 10 and we could be dealing with a real level. But of course, the MHRA is not doing its job by investigating these figures. There's no, um, there's no study reports released by the MHRA. There's just these press announcements making claims. Uh, well, don't worry. Later on in the programme, we'll be discussing the MHRA a little bit more because they've produced a new business plan, and we'll have a look at that in a second. But David, back to you. Uh, yes, the, on the minor effects, and sometimes not so minor effects, I've been asking anyone that, that I've come into contact with who's had the vaccine, uh, if they had any reactions, a lot of people did. And then I asked them, have you reported it? I've yet to, I've yet to meet anybody who has reported uh, the reactions, even though they go up to um, 
temporary partial paralysis. I mean, quite nasty uh, reactions. None of this is on the uh, yellow card system at all. So there's a lot. There's a lot that's not been reported. Which brings now, us on to uh, VERS. Which brings us on to VERS. VERS um, traditionally was viewed as being maybe one percent of of the the the, the true figure. Um, whether that's still the case, I don't know. Uh, but here we've got the, the current figures through to uh, June 25, 6,985 deaths, 23,000 hospitalizations, 54,000 cases requiring urgent care, 2,000 cases of Bell's palsy. So again, um, very substantial and an order of, in fact, two orders of magnitude higher than the level of adverse reactions that got vaccinations pulled in the past. Two orders of magnitude. And yet the, the, the narrative is, there's nothing to see here, move along. And then we look at Europe. And then on to Europe, um, you, um, Eudura Vigilance is the website. This is actually produced by uh, an independent organization because they don't collate all of the COVID vaccine stats in one place. You've got to go and search for each individual vaccine and add them up. But we're talking across the EU, 12,184 dead, uh, 1,196,190 injuries. So very substantial. And from Health Impact News here, we have um, a, a, a note that of those 1.1 million injuries, 604,744 were serious. Serious being defined uh, as um, it, recall, it, it uh, results in death or life-threatening uh, or requires inpatient hospitalization or results in another medically important condition or prolonged, exist, uh, prolonged hospitalization or persistent and significant disability or incapacity um, or as a congenital or birth defect. So that that is, ex I mean, serious is serious, and that's more than half. That's 604,000. I mean, that for a start would suggest a lot of the minor reactions are not being recorded. And uh, that is a level of harm that is absolutely breathtaking. Um, yes, but uh, don't worry. Uh, we've got the World Economic Forum here to uh, tell us how to overcome our vaccine hesitancy. The the World Economic Forum uh, come to the rescue. The, no, no medical qualifications required here. Economic qualifications are apparently all you need. And they've got three tactics to overcome vaccine hesitancy. Don't you love the way it's described as vaccine hesitancy? You, you never decide not to have the vaccine. No, you're just hesitant. I mean, you're going to get it, but you're just hesitant. It's just a delay. It's just a temporary blip upon your road to Jim Broadvent dancing style uh, vaccine happiness. So their uh, three, three tactics are think, feel, do. There's a few beauties in here. Um, when, when they're talking about thinking, um, uh, they're talking about multimedia communication, they're talking about local medical, religious, business and political leaders who are going to educate us. Um, um, they also talk about the need for common folks to teach your family, friends and colleagues and to, to build conviction. And they're talking about creating FOMO. That's fear of missing out. So they're trying to get you to fear that you're going to miss out on the vaccine. Now, this is, of course, contrary to informed consent. This is all unlawful. Every line on this is unlawful. 
um, and then they're talking about behavioural changes, incentivization that's also unlawful, it's not informed consent, um, and uh, uh, the government uh, and business have been encouraged to make it easy. But the incentivization we'll get to how that might look uh, a little later in the programme. Uh, okay, so what's the latest, then, David, on the question of uh, whether you're entitled to retain your job in the event you refuse a vaccine? Well, um, there seems to be at least some debate over this. And in America, which we'll see now a little extract courtesy of the BBC, um, uh, people are losing their jobs. This, this, this goes to a hospital uh, who have sacked over 150 of their, their hero hardworking um, staff for refusing to take the vaccine. So you either comply with enforced medical uh, intervention uh, against your will, uh, or you have to seek employment elsewhere. That's where we've got to. I'm definitely prepared to lose my job. I don't think in my life I will ever get this vaccine. There's all this misinformation out there and it has the potential to undermine the vaccine. I've always loved my job. I've been in there seven years. I've been with Methodist about six and a half years. Houston Methodist is the first hospital system uh, in the United States uh, to mandate the vaccine, and I expect you'll see literally hundreds more uh, follow. And it's a sacred responsibility to keep patients safe. And so it was a very logical decision to mandate the COVID vaccine. Initially, I just wanted the vaccine to be fully FDA approved. I also wanted um, the long-term data to be known before I took it, because once you put it into your body, you can't take it back out. But now as time's progressed, I have decided I will never take this shot. There's this, in some ways, overemphasis on personal liberties. And, and you know, I'm, I think personal liberties are, are really quite important, but I think personal liberties need to be in balance with not putting other people at risk. It's very disheartening and we feel like we've been stabbed in the back because last year, you know, quote unquote, we wore capes and we were these big, you know, heroes and now all of a sudden we're being kicked to the curb. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah, kicked to the curb is, is a fair comment. The comment, uh, I, I'd cut that down for lack of time, but I left in one or two of the, uh, of, of the attacks on, um, on the nurses and doctors here uh, from the administrators uh, and from the uh, talking head experts. I particularly like the overemphasis on personal liberty uh, criticism. Uh, it reminded me so much of, uh, of, of Nazi sloganeering um, in the 1930s. This is exactly what they were saying, that uh, it's not the individual, it's the, it's the group that counts and you must sacrifice uh, for, for the greater good. This is um, the common good, not the individual good. I think that was the, the, what they, how they phrased it. Um, 
I, I found that quite disturbing. And here you have 150 people who've already been dismissed from their jobs and who are out in the street um, campaigning and rallying against this and, and getting support from the public, but not the slightest hint that the, uh, the hospital administrators will move unless, uh, of course, the courts force them to. Yes. Uh, now, David, uh, moving back to Scotland then, um, I think you've got a little bit of video here showing uh, the progression of the weekly cause of death in Scotland from 2019. Yeah, this is this is very interesting. If you if you play it, I'll try and talk over it as it runs. It's quite quick, but uh, what it's showing here is um, let's see. Yeah, there. So there comes COVID. So it immediately becomes the number one cause of death very quickly, and then very quickly subsides again. Goes through the summer of twenty twenty. Basically, it doesn't exist despite all the fear mongering and closed downs and lockdowns. It didn't exist. It then, then we get to the the autumn. It comes up, and then it's then it subsides until the vaccine starts, and then it immediately shoots back to number one, and then subsides again, and then dies back by March, April to almost nothing, and now it's basically hardly visible. And that, but yet the the fear mongering and um, panic uh, statements from uh, from um, uh, officials and from politicians continues unabated. Uh, I thought that was a, a very good little graphic that gave an indication of just what has actually gone on, when it has mattered and when it's been significant and when it has not, because this is not discernible from the mainstream media. The mainstream media. Um, have a ground beat of panic and fear the whole time. Uh, indeed, they do. Now, uh, let's uh, let's move on to the question of uh, the division between people, because obviously there's a lot of uh, uh, propaganda, let's call it, in the press at the moment, uh, to make people fearful of each other, make the vaccinated unfearful, fearful of the of the unvaccinated, and the unvaccinated fearful of the vaccinated. Very much in the same kind of divisive uh, way that they uh, ran the Brexit. Uh, situation. But let's just have a look at this one from CNN Health. Unvaccinated people are variant factories, infectious disease expert says. Um, so let's have a look and see what he does say. It's, he says, this is Dr. William Schaffner, a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And he told CNN on Friday, unvaccinated people are potential variant factories. The more unvaccinated people there are, the more opportunities for the virus to multiply. Uh, when it does, it mutates, and it could throw off a variant mutation that is even more serious down the road. So the question is, is this true? What actually drives mutations stroke variants? And the answer to that is antibodies drive mutations. Um, but the problem is, Mr. Sorry, I can't remember his name, but the problem is for CNN here uh, that it's the vaccinated that have higher levels of antibodies. So the, here is uh, uh, News Medical Life Sciences, uh, Medical Life Sciences News perhaps, uh, higher levels of antibodies from COVID-19 mRNA vaccine compared to natural SARS-CoV-2 SARS infection. Um, and let's have a look and see what this uh, paper says. Comparing the antibody levels between those who had a natural infection and those who were vaccinated the authors found that the anti-RDB levels, uh, uh, RBD levels in vaccinated individuals varied widely from being similar to those infected naturally to almost 20 times more compared to natural infection. Now, this causes two problems. First of all, it specializes 
uh, in the vaccinated, the immune system, which means that uh, if variants come along, they may be more susceptible to them. But uh, more than that, it this suggests very strongly that it's the vaccinated that are the variant factories, not the unvaccinated. Um, let's have a look at uh, this one. Multiple SARS-CoV-2 variants escape neutralization by vaccine-induced humoral immunity. And there's humoral immunity, by the way, is antibody immunity. And there, there's plenty of scientific literature which suggests it's, it's variant escape comes via the vaccinated, not the unvaccinated. Uh, then we've got this uh, video, which I suggest people have a look at and watch carefully. This is uh, the Rockefeller University and COVID-19 virtual discussions with genuine experts is how they, uh, they uh, bill it. And if you search on YouTube for SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccines and variants, uh, it's Richard P. Lifton uh, is the interviewer and, uh, uh, and uh, Paul uh, Bieniash uh, is the professor talking about this. And he was talking about taking antibodies from a vaccinated person, putting them in a Petri dish and being able to generate uh, all the variants that we've already seen, plus a number of variants that haven't been seen yet in the wild. Um, so really, this uh, headline is not real. It, it is fake. Um, and we probably should remove the un from uh, the word unvaccinated. Um, and remove infectious disease expert says, because of course no infectious disease expert has said this on CNN at least. And the headline should probably be vaccinated people are variant factories. But the key point here is that as if we look at what's going on, um, the variants, if we look at the Delta variant at the moment, which is becoming much more prevalent, uh, but it is resulting in much fewer hospitalizations. And David, the problem is, that in the mainstream press, we're seeing a story uh, that the reason that there are much fewer hospitalizations from uh, the Delta variant is because the uh, link between uh, infection and hospitalization has been broken by the vaccines. But unfortunately, at this point, if we look at the, uh, the cases, the, the, the line, the, the graph for cases and case numbers, we see that this year there has been exactly the same fall off in cases uh, it come April, May time, as we saw last year. And so the question is, if vaccination was the result of, is the cause of the reduction in uh, case numbers in 2021, what caused the reduction in case numbers in 2020? That's an excellent question. And of course we know because they've told us that most of the models they're using to model uh, and decide and predict how many lives are saving or costing and decide what to do. Uh, don't actually include seasonality in the model um, makeup, which is which is incredible for a seasonal respiratory illness. It's just it just makes no sense whatsoever. Unless you've got a prior narrative you want to present, yeah, I couldn't possibly um, suggest unless, that. Unless unless the truth is not what you're after, yeah, yes. Yeah. We just add that UK Column's been able to speak to two. Uh, leading world experts uh, recently, Anne-Marie Yim and Dr. Harvey Seligman, and uh, they've been telling us exactly um, what Mike's just put across in that segment, uh, that the real danger for, for the variants is originating from vaccinated people. Uh, but this, uh, this type of opinion in the scientific community is being 
heavily and pretty viciously uh, suppressed at the moment. Yes. Now, if you like what the UK Column does, if you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, there are options for you to join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also do share our material on the various platforms uh, as, uh, as that progresses. Now, uh, Many of our audience have uh, been telling us about an article which appeared in the Times on Saturday, which we're just going to bring up on, on screen. Uh, this was the banner headline and the opening picture. Uh, and there was a modest length article talking about the UK column and other matters. Uh, we're going to say today that uh, we're actually taking legal advice. We may comment on this in the future. Uh, but at the moment, we don't want to prejudice any uh, possible future legal action. So we're going to limit our comment today, but we are going to say thank you very much to everybody that flagged up the article. And we've certainly taken note of your comments with respect to that Times article. Um, and uh, well, that was uh, on Saturday, uh, but today uh, the BBC has published this, uh, Mariana Spring, uh, there she is. Uh, has been very busy. Uh, and here is uh, her report on uh, where is the anti-lockdown lockdown movement headed. Um, so we have a little uh, excerpt from this um, and uh, well, we'll get uh, David's comments afterwards, but this is a slight edit of what she uh, has released. What do I think is going on? It's a global reset. It's a nefarious agenda to strip away our freedom. Even though the UK is opening up, a recent protest against COVID restrictions attracted thousands, frustrated at the slow pace of the return to normality. Placards talked about opposition to lockdowns and their impact on the economy and mental health, as well as to so-called vaccine passports and criticism of government ministers. All of these are legitimate areas for discussion, but have become muddled in with extreme conspiracy theories promoted at the protest and shared on messaging apps like Telegram, where the march was organised. We spoke to two protesters ahead of the march. Graham and Kate live miles apart. They have different jobs. I work with property. I'm studying a psychology degree. What they share is a belief that the pandemic is part of a more sinister plot to limit our freedoms. Like many, they are critical of the government and lockdowns but these views have proven a gateway into more extreme beliefs about the pandemic, shared repeatedly on social media channels that they've joined. Experts studying these online movements are concerned about the legacy that they might leave. Sadly for a lot of people, it's very difficult to get out of these kind of worldviews and ideologies once you're in them. That's not just because you're surrounded by that disinformation day in and day out, but also because it becomes your social network and your community. So we certainly need to be aware not just of the disinformation angle here, but also of the extremism angle and the effect that might have both on the targets of extremist groups, so minority communities or those who are vulnerable to attack, uh, but also uh, more broadly to the radicalisation to violence that we might see alongside that. As the UK moves towards the next phase of the pandemic, several issues are up for debate. But for Graham, Kate and many in these crowds, this has become about more than COVID-19. Um, so there you go, David. Uh, the uh, anti-lockdown uh, community is a gateway drug, effectively. Uh, so we, uh, th they are the marijuana. Uh, we're heading towards uh, the, uh, you know, crack, crack cocaine and so on. Um, but 
you know, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I have to say, I didn't come across a single person uh, in during the demonstration in London uh, the other weekend um, who was in any way expressing violent extremist uh, thoughts or or uh, feelings. So I'm not clear how uh, the anti-lockdown movement is heading towards violent extremism. No, no, that was an outstanding piece by the BBC. Um, I I liked a bit when he said thousands, right? So there was there was hundreds of thousands of people there. So at the very least, she's taken the true total of, num of the people who actually turned out for the protest down by about ninety nine percent. So that's that's quite interesting. There was one person that they were they blurred out. I think it was Piers Corbyn. I don't know why they did that, but it looked like Piers Corbyn. But they they had they had um, they had put his face behind a, a, an obscure patch on the video. Um, ah, yes, and then we get this uh, bizarre thing. I mean, they, they talked about this gateway, but of course, the, the two people they interviewed didn't give any indication of extreme views. So this 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 gateway idea has come completely from the BBC. It doesn't have any foundation in truth. We were at that march. It was extremely good natured. It was extremely warm and friendly. And even when up, you know, coming up to people who might be viewed as authority figures like the police, um, it was it, everything I saw, all the interactions I saw were friendly there as well. Um, sometimes maybe a little bit mocking, sometimes some humour, but, 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 but nothing extreme. Um, so this just appears to be a lie. Radicalization towards violence. I honestly don't know what she's talking about. Um, well, look, there was I've, one. I've, I've not seen it. Right. There was I, one. Just, Sorry, just David, fi hold on. Final, fi no, hold on, because I've got one thing I want to want before you give me a final thought. I was one thing I want to run by you, right? Because the expert they had on there, whose name escapes me at the moment, said that once you get into these thoughts, you're having these thoughts and these ideological positions, it's very difficult to get out again of these mindsets. Um, and that's particularly the case when, you, when you're in a community and the community is effectively re reflecting the same uh, thoughts and mindsets back to you. And what occurred to me, David, is that sounds a bit like the BBC. Well, well yes, it is. It is a it's a accusing your opponents of that which you are guilty. Yes, that, that is, that's, a, that's definitely correct. And, and also, I thought that the point about once people are in this, it's difficult for them to leave. Shows maybe a concern there by the authorities that once people are no longer buying their propaganda, they'll never buy it again. You know, once they realize we ask questions and then the answers are incoherent, I don't believe these people, I don't trust these people anymore. Once people find that out for themselves, they're very unlikely to go back to trusting the state and trusting the BBC and trusting the government because the state, the BBC and the government have proven themselves to be not worthy of the trust. So once the trust is lost, it's probably lost on a permanent basis unless there's a big change in the government, the BBC and the authorities, and there's no sign of that. The final thing I'd want to make, or the final point I'd want to make is the comment about extremism was then made as they cut to a shot of two people carrying Union flags. So this is again demonization of patriotism of anyone who loves the country, 
that we saw all the time during the Brexit campaign uh, and the Brexit debates, that if you if you think that Britain is 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 worth looking after, if you think that Britain is is something special uh, and that's something that you love, then then you're a horrible, nasty right wing extremist uh, with violent tendencies. That seems to be the BBC's view. It's um, obviously not based in reality, but I, I thought that little bit of editing was quite telling. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, an email came in to UK Columns saying that the Freedom March last weekend looked great. We're wondering when the next one in, uh, next one is, as would like to attend, to which we say we don't organise the marches, so we rely on our audience to tell us when these events are going to take place. Uh, but we are very happy to say that they are of great importance and probably if the numbers could be doubles, that would be very beneficial. But the one place to go would be the Stand Up X uh, website. Indeed. Yes. Okay, so we'll wait to hear more back from our audience. We just wanted to do a little reminder about uh, the BBC, because back on the 30th of June, we were talking about this reporter, Frankie McCamley, who was basically misleading the audience over the big large, uh, the big protest in in. Uh, in London, um, this was the start of it. It didn't matter your cause. All groups mixed and charted alongside each other. Well, actually, they didn't. Uh, there was one big and distinct demonstration. But she said thousands came to Regent Street, bringing placards, flags, and familiar chants. Um, so we don't talk about hundreds of thousands, possibly a million people. You just mix it into a blob. Uh, it went on, uh, so we didn't report anything on lockdown and vaccine adverse reaction, that part of the protest. But what she did report big was Extinction Rebellion, and that's obviously a smear. Uh, and of course, Extinction Rebellion led to talk about raids, police confiscation of bamboo structures and members arrested. So the peaceful uh, lockdown protesters and those protesting about vaccine adverse reactions um, they were ignored. Meanwhile, Extinction Rebellion was puffed up. So we did a summary so saying there was no credible reporting of the concerns of 500,000, maybe it was a million, families warning of the loss of liberty and lockdown and the dangers of vaccine adverse reactions. BBC didn't report that. Uh, failure to show any images of the vaccine adverse reaction banners and leaflets. Interesting, that's just popped up, Mike, in what you've just shown us, could the BBC get a, be getting a little bit windy? I think they are. And then basically those peaceful families were all smeared by the BBC with the violent extremism of Extinction Rebellion. Now, we receive a lot of interesting emails. I've had to do a lot of editing uh, of, uh, of this one in order to protect the person. Uh, but they're describing a small protest that started at the BBC and was comprised of Extinction Rebellion, the Communist Party, Free Palestine and a few other groups. There were about 2,000 to 3,000 protesters that marched from the BBC to Parliament Square. They were very separate from the freedom anti-lockdown protest. The pictures that appeared on the BBC were taken at this protest. You can see the BBC in the background and the porter would have known this. It's a clear and deliberate misrepresentation of the truth. This confirms exactly what you were saying on the UK Column News, and that was the report that I've just shown our viewers today. The freedom protest arrived at Parliament Square at about uh, 20 to 30 minutes after the smaller protests and swallowed it up. Now, 
This is a, an email from a professional who was present. I can't give you more details, uh, but interesting that that professional says that our report was spot on. So let's just remind people of, that, of course, if we go back in May, people were actually protesting outside the BBC itself, and the £5 billion BBC propaganda machine stayed silent. Let's have a look at this little clip, and we're going to thank Mick Clark uh, for this one. Uh, but here is the real protest with people shouting out the BBC for its utter propaganda and false reporting over so many subjects. Uh, so there we have it. When it comes down to it, people uh, will get in front of the BBC and their faces calling them out. But of course, the BBC's response was silent. I'll just bring up this uh, uh, tweet that was sent to us because I liked it so much. Uh, Bob's Monkey said the BBC is like the PCR test. They take a false truth and amplify it over 45 cycles to the point no one questions it. Um, so that's uh, pretty good. And I'll also bring up this one. Now, quite often we get people saying, why do we not report things? And we often go back and say, because we haven't got, we haven't got the information. So somebody's saying there's a great group of people reporting outside BBC Manchester. They've been there for some time. Uh, we've been alerted to this before, but we're saying, please send us information and then we can report. So. It's up to our viewers and listeners to help us out on that one. Um, okay, uh, David, uh, back to Scotland. And this is The Telegraph with an exclusive. Uh, children being given vaccine as consuls go rogue. Uh, yes, this is actually England. Um, um, oh, is it? Oh, it's sorry. Not, it, yeah, this, this is England. Um, so 16, 17-year-olds uh, who are not eligible for the COVID vaccine unless they're classified as vulnerable uh, have been um, roped into a mass vaccination program um, in uh, the English Midlands. Um, so this is uh, Rochdale Borough Council invited anyone aged 16 and over to have a first dose of the Pfizer jab without the need for an appointment. Another drive-through clinic for teenagers is due to take place in the town on Saturday. Uh, the spokesman said, our borough is one of the areas of the country worst affected by coronavirus. And their infection rate is now approaching that seen in Bolton a few weeks ago. Amongst our younger age group, the rate is almost 1,000 cases per 100,000 people. Many 16 and 17-year-olds with underlying health conditions have already been vaccinated, but many other younger adults who are at risk for different reasons are falling outside the national protocol. I actually have no idea what different reasons means in this, in this context. Uh, they can it continues on that basis and to avoid any vaccine wastage. Does this mean it's because they've got vaccines that are about to be out of date? Yeah. Is that why we're doing this? To avoid any vaccine wastage, a multi-agency decision, it's always a multi-agency decision. There's no one responsible. A multi-agency decision was taken with clinical leads to temporarily expand the qualifying criteria for at-risk 16 and 17-year-olds. Uh, for our clinics this weekend. But following discussions, we have now revised our plans. So they seem to have backed down. Um, under current COVID regulations, 16, 17 year olds are not eligible 
uh, under current guidance, sorry, for COVID vaccine, and, and the 16, 17 year olds are not eligible for COVID vaccine unless they're classified as vulnerable. Yet in a leaflet seen by the Telegraph, Rochdale Borough Council invited thousands of under 18s to come forward for the first Pfizer jab. It said, quote, if you are age 16 or over and have not got an existing appointment, please drop in to one of the extra vaccine clinics, end quote. A decision on whether COVID vaccines should be offered to youngsters is due in the coming weeks, although um, the Joint uh, Council on Vaccine and Immunisation is understood to want uh, more time to study data from the US on possible side effects. Do you think um, MADI will be one of the possible side effects that they will be studying? Uh, well, possibly. But um, so is this is this council breaking the law? Well, it was certainly breaking the guidance. Who knows what the law is anymore, uh, Mike? It's, it's, it's become completely unknowable. They're breaking guidance, and guidance is now the equivalent of law for these people. So, yes, and if they harm any of these uh, 16, 17-year-olds, then uh, I would have thought that they would have been perhaps under, shall we say, very great legal stress because they have done so in not following the government guidelines uh, and in advance of the consideration as to whether the vaccine is safe for that cohort. Yes. Um, okay, look, uh, we're going to jump forward a little bit, uh, David, to Dr. Sam, Sam White. Yes, uh, thanks to a lot of people who sent this through. Um, this is a whistleblowing GP, and there's a letter from his legal firm to uh, Sir Sam Stevens, Chief Executive Officer of NHS England. I've got a few short extracts here. The letter's on the web, it's 22 pages long, and is magnificent, and is well worth a read. Um, so the, the, the uh, lawyer writes, I'm instructed by Dr Sam White, a GP, uh, he's had his license to practice with the NHS suspended by letter from the NHS dated 26th of June 2021. Please treat this letter as a public interest disclosure or whistleblow in that it raises allegations of alleged criminal conduct and breach of legal obligations by those leading the COVID response. Um, a couple of extracts of how this is how, the, how they make the case here. My client's social media output sets out two main propositions, which are further developed here. One, the vaccine programme has been rolled out in breach of legal requirements for clinicians to obtain free and informed consent of those being vaccinated. Two, the requirement to wear face coverings in an NHS setting is in breach of common law obligations not to cause harm and breaches statutory obligations in relation to the provision of PPE. Um, so they then go on and list the people who have um, uh, failed to meet the legal requirements. Her Majesty's Government, the Executive Board of the NHS, SAGE, Senior Public Office Holders within the Civil Service, and the Executive Board of the MHRA. Um, and uh, they go to, they then describe the requirements on clinicians that they must first do no harm and then obtain the free informed consent of those being vaccinated. Um, and they then refer to the Montgomery case, um, which went to the Supreme Court, laid down the principles for free informed consent, which are one, the patient is given sufficient information to allow individuals to make choices that will affect their health as well as being uh, and, and well-being on proper information. Sufficient information means informing the patient of the availability of other treatments. The patient is informed of the material risks of taking the vaccine and the material risks of declining the vaccine. And they then go and list some of the known side effects 
Um, I'm first pointing out that this that the swine flu vaccine was suspended on safety grounds after 50 deaths. Remember, we're over 1,400 now. And it lists the um, risks from vaccination known to date as um, death. At the time of writing, it was over 1,300. Bell's palsy, thromboembolic events with low platelets, capillary leak syndrome, menstrual disorder and extreme bleeding, myocarditis, pericarditis, and antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, that's just a very quick run through. This letter um, is all based on uh, factual references, which are given. There's, there's a lot of cross-references. There are much more detailed um, scientific papers that back up each point, but the letter is written in a way which is accessible to the public and is expressly uh, written in that way as an, as an intentional uh, measure because this is whistleblowing um, in an area where the public have a right to know what's happening. Um, it's an excellent letter and I would encourage everyone to seek it out. And uh, there will be much information in there that people who wish to ask questions uh, can use themselves to um, put pressure on uh, the, the those who are making these decisions to justify the decisions they're making in our name. Yes. Uh, and then just uh, let's quickly move on to the MHRA. Back in May, we highlighted this uh, tweet from uh, Lord Bethel. Um, the MHRA has done a fantastic job in the pandemic. The yellow card scheme is exemplary patient ex engagement, he said. Uh, we're building on success by doubling down on this approach to public involvement. Please send in your thoughts. And they ran a bit of a con consultation and they came up with their patient involvement strategy. Uh, so they were going to be focused around patient and public involvement responsiveness, and they were going to change their internal culture, and the internal culture was going to uh, change so that it involved uh, the public or engagement with the public. Uh, they were going to measure outcomes all about uh, engagement with the public, and they were going to have partnerships with the public. So everybody would be glad to know that they have uh, published their delivery plan 2021 to 2023 for delivery read business, um, and uh, it's entitled Putting Patients First a new era for agencies. So let's see what they have to say here. At the core of the plan is how the MHRA will draw together its scientific and regulatory expertise to help facilitate the UK life sciences sector and health service. That in that first sentence is all you need to know. This is not about engagement with the public. This is not about helping the public or regulating the industry. This is about facilitating the industry, developing the industry. Um, so they're going to develop new regulatory frameworks, quickly realize the benefits of new therapies and innovative technologies such as artificial intelligence. Well, if the uh, yellow card scheme is the best that they can do with their artificial intelligence, then they've got problems. Uh, but anyway, they go on to improve outcomes for patients and ensure the continued safety, quality and efficacy of medicines and medical devices. Yes. I'm only smiling as you're talking. I know, like I can see it. Uh, <laughs> underpinning this delivery is the creation of a new business model. That A new business model, this is a business plan uh, that provides a financially sustainable future and will meet the increasing expectations of patients, healthcare professionals, partners, the pharmaceutical industry, government and wider industry and non-profit stakeholders alike. So this is all about stakeholder capitalism once again. Uh, the plan sets out 14 objectives grouped into six central themes scientific innovation, healthcare access, patient safety, uh, dynamic organization, uh, collaborative partnerships, and financial sustainability. They've got to have a decent business model going. 
Uh, overarching all of these for every member of staff is the priority to deliver better patient and public involvement and putting patients first. Because if you can deliver better patient and public involvement, then you can deliver a much better uh, framework uh, market, shall we say, for the industry. But anyway, let's have a look at what Jane, June Rain had to say. Our response to the COVID-19 pandemic is proof positive that we can rise to challenges with fresh thinking and innovative approaches. Uh, fulfilling our responsibilities to, pa to patients first and foremost is as outlined in the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review uh, and opening up the many opportunities now that the EU has left, uh, sorry, now that the UK has left the EU with real benefit to the brilliant UK life sciences industry and to healthcare. So, David, I don't know what your thoughts are there very briefly because we're already over time, but uh, that looks to me like a business plan. They're developing a new market. They're looking for new ways to engage the public to make sure we're happy to continue paying for pharmaceutical profits. The woman who was named after the long-range weather forecast is clearly um, out there to be a cheerleader and enabler for an industry. This looks to me <clears throat> like a regulator completely captured by the industry uh, that they're meant to regulate, which is so often the case. Yes. Um, well, I've got a little seg segment here on, uh, well, Her Majesty the Queen. Are we giving... going on? Or are we well, going... I think we should, Mike, because the end of it is is uh, we've got a little bit of an ad for a very good lady. So I'll do this very quickly. Right. But uh, let's just bring this in. So I decided to go for the BBC because it was in front of me at the time. But it was Her Majesty the Queen awarding the George Cross to the NHS, praising all the staff. Um, we picked up the story with the Express because they're claiming that uh, they started the campaign uh, to get this award for the NHS. So they've got this uh, stunning image and an interesting article, encourage people to read it for themselves. Uh, so what did uh, Elizabeth have to say? She said, it was great pleasure on behalf of a grateful nation that I award the George Cross to the uh, National Health Services of the United Kingdom. It recognises all the NHS staff, past and present, across all disciplines and all four nations. Over more than seven decades, and especially in recent times, you've supported the people of our country with courage, compassion and dedication, demonstrating the highest standards of public service. Uh, you have our enduring thanks and heartfelt appreciation. Now, we know there's many people working extremely hard in the NHS as it's been dismantled around them, uh, but also there's some very very murky things going on in the NHS. But uh, let's just have another look at this. Uh, here's the Express, obviously, and that smiling face. And let's bring in this because uh, we've got something rather different happening here. We've got medals for the NHS. But if you're a lady like Debbie Hicks, who was actually filming the empty hospital in Gloucestershire, uh, you're facing court on Monday, the 12th of July. So interesting that the mainstream media is bigging up the good work of the NHS when people who took the trouble to film what was happening are saying, hang on a minute, because many of those hospitals or hospital capacity was empty. So we'd like to say if you are free on Monday, the 12th of July, and you can be near Sirencester or you can be in Sirencester, uh, would you look to give uh, Debbie Hicks some support? And we're going to say, really be there for this brave lady, peaceful presence, be persistent and be respectful in putting the supportive arguments across the 
politer you are, the more powerful uh, you will be. But we think this lady deserves uh, some support for what she did to expose that uh, the truth was not being told about what was happening inside the NHS. So uh, any thoughts, David, just briefly before we go? Well, it's just, where was the crime? How can she be in court when she didn't do anything? It's, it's, it's another example of the breakdown. Why was, why was there nearly a million people, or around about a million people in the streets of London? It's because they saw their country being demolished and they, they were saying, no, we don't consent to this. We don't want this. This is not the nation we want to build. We don't lock people up for telling the truth, or we used to not. Right? That's not who we are as a people. And that's the type of state that's being imposed upon us. Yeah, uh, she, she's in trouble because she's challenged the agenda of the British state, which can uh, lie, deceive people, twist the truth, uh, start the wars overseas. But if you challenge that, you're going to be in trouble. So what we've got to do is stand up and support this lady. Let's end on a positive note. We'd like to thank the individuals inside the BBC that have been kind enough to let us know there's been some high-level meetings over the last few days in order to discuss the fact that even the BBC's top management team is now recognising they're not exactly popular amongst the British public. Now, we haven't got details of what happened inside those meetings, um, but it was kind of individuals inside the BBC to let us know they took place. Yeah. Uh, sorry, David, you're waving your hand, but we we are massively over time. I, I find a final a final snip and snippet of information from the BBC. One of the gentlemen I was talking to at the, at the march last Saturday had spent three days outside the BBC protesting. And not only did he get on very well with the security guards who came out to see him and were actually quite interested and mostly agreed with what he had to say, but the BBC employees, as they left the building, right, would give him furtive thumbs up signs uh, such that they, they couldn't be caught on CCTV, but they were still giving him encouragement. So the, the desperate beast that is the BBC is one thing, but the people inside the building are quite another. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll be back in a few minutes for a little bit of extra. Yeah, thank you for joining us. See you then. Okay, bye-bye.